You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we'll be looking this morning at verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Back in, I believe it was 2011, the Presbyterian Church of the USA was creating a hymnal. And one of the songs that they wanted to put in that hymnal was the Getty song, In Christ Alone. But they wanted to change one of the lines in the song. How the song goes, how we've sung it when we have. The song is, the line is, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Song wanted it to be, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. A little different. Now to Keith Getty's credit, he did not allow for the change. And so the song was excluded from the official PCUSA hymnal. But why? Why was that phrase a dividing point for the Presbyterian Church of the USA? Because to assert that Christ's death was an atonement for sin, that God was angry and in need of his wrath being satisfied against sinners is offensive. But brothers and sisters, as you know full well, that exactly is the proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. It is exactly the picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it is what is declared from beginning to end of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. This is the word of God. Because God is angry. God is a God of wrath. And he is angry and stands against everything that is in opposition to his holiness. And that means you and I, in of ourselves as sinners. And the rest of mankind. And so it is then, apart from grace, we are under condemnation. We are children of wrath, naturally deserving in our sin his wrath. And God's wrath must be satisfied. His justice must be served or else God is not just or else he is not holy. But most people do not react to such a message in a positive way. People in general are hostile to such a message. But think about your own salvation. When you came to Jesus Christ, you came knowing you were a sinner in need of his grace. Because you know that God demands righteousness. And seeing your sin, you recognize you have no righteousness in of yourself. That you need to come to Christ and have him as your righteousness. You come to Christ trusting that he has paid for your sins. And is that not something for us to rejoice in? He paid for my sin. 
My guilty plea became his guilt. And he suffered the consequences of that eternal wrath in his eternal person as the God-man, in my place. Yet so many who claim to believe the gospel seem to actually be ashamed of this gospel. They do not proclaim this gospel. They water down the gospel. They sugarcoat the gospel. They say anything else but this gospel. Because they don't want to offend anybody. And they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed of how people respond to the gospel. And so even in the so-called church today, we will seek to bring people in and, and grow the church in so many different ways and so many different tactics, but not with the gospel. We seek to attract the world with worldly things. And as Paul Washer has said, what you bring them in with is what you must keep them with. Because what it comes down to is so much of the professing church is ashamed of the gospel. Last week, we began to get into the body of Paul's letter here to the Romans, and, and there uh, we saw Paul express his gratitude for the Roman believers as their faith had been made known in the whole cosmos. Paul also wanted to make sure that they knew that he had wanted to come visit them, but he had been prevented. He wanted them to know that he had been praying, that somehow by God's will he'd be able to get to them. And he was praying along these lines because he longed to see them, and he longed to see them that he might be able to impart some spiritual gift to them. There might be some encouragement, and, and mutual encouragement as we saw. The encouragement that would come from their faith and Paul's faith to one another. Paul also told them that he had desired to come to them so he would reap a harvest among them. To preach the gospel among the unbelievers in Rome. As Paul said, he was under obligation. He was in debt to both Greeks and to barbarians, to both the wise and the foolish and everyone in between. Paul had been given this message of reconciliation, and so then he was indebted to give it to all who had not heard it, to all whom God had given him the opportunity to proclaim it to. And we read in verse 15, Paul said, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Those he's writing to, saying, I, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. See, because the gospel must be preached to both unbelievers and believers. The unbeliever needs the gospel. They need to hear the gospel so that they would believe the gospel, believe in the work of Jesus Christ, and be credited with his righteousness. And the believer needs the gospel because it's this gospel message in which one is pressed on into further depths of sanctification, into further depths of, of living in response to our Lord and all that he has done. We need the gospel. And so we see Paul was eager. He was burning with passion, you could say, to fulfill his debt and preach the gospel there in Rome. And so that's where we left off last week. And so now we pick it up here. And we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. So if you would, read them with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So as we come here and we look at verse 16, verse 16 starts with this conjunction for, and this points us back to what we looked at last week. Uh, Paul here is explaining why he is so eager to preach the gospel there in Rome. And it is because he is not ashamed of the gospel. And as he, he presents the reason why he's, he he's, wants to preach the gospel there in Rome, he also then, with this, presents the thesis of this letter. You know, the very thing that he's going to take the next 11 chapters to defend. So he's eager to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Some, you can also say then that he's proud of the gospel. In writing to the Corinthians about a, a year or two, or not quite two, but maybe a little over a year earlier than when he wrote to the Romans, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul mentioned all of the countless beatings and all the suffering that he went through in carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. And we read there in verses 24 through 27, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is all Paul went through in order to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we may look at this and say, man, uh, preaching the gospel has brought, brought nothing but hardship and pain for Paul. But what a joy it is to give our lives for the very one who gave his life for us. How worthy is he of my body spent, of my health depleted, of my very life laid down for him. He is worthy of all of this. He's worthy of our lives. And, and this is exactly how Paul felt. This was exactly Paul's attitude. But you look at everything Paul went through and you'd think that if there's anyone who had any reason to be ashamed of the gospel, to want to not speak up and proclaim this message, it would have been Paul. You know, Paul says, no, my Lord is worthy of me proclaiming this gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel. Even as we think of the things we've seen going through our study in Acts in Sunday school. What's happened when we've seen Paul proclaim the gospel? We have seen people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But we've also seen people come against Paul viciously with, with murderous intent. We've seen his life on the line as Jews plotted against him, as they conspired with the Gentiles in those cities, and even at times with the leaders of that, those cities. You see how Paul's own people, the Jews, responded to him when he preached the gospel. If there was anyone that would have concern about how others would respond to the gospel, it was Paul. And yet Paul was not going to do anything to alter his message, to even change how he preached it. 
We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul made it clear that he was not going to preach the gospel in such a way that would make it more palatable to anyone. He wouldn't preach it in such a way that, that people would want to hear it. You know, even think about the Greeks, specifically in that context. The Greeks loved to hear, uh, high, uh, philosophical, high, uh, words of eloquence that were, that seemed very wise. Also, no, I'm just gonna preach the gospel for what it is. I'm not gonna preach it in a way that's gonna make them want to hear it. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, we don't need to add to the gospel or preach in a way to make it palatable as if the power of the gospel is in the proclaimer. Because really the truth of the matter is it's not about the one sharing the gospel. It's all about the one that's proclaimed in the gospel. It's all about Jesus Christ. And my friends, that's where the power lies. Right? Like we just sang, the power of the cross. What did we sing about? What Christ has done in paying for our sin. The power lies in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But due to the response of the gospel and who the gospel was associated with, the gospel could pile shame on someone who proclaimed it and was associated with it. As Paul was speaking to a honor culture, of which honor and shame were, were major aspects of it for a person standing in society and, and, and who they were and, and their reputation, and how even they'd be treated. And so to see Paul say that he was not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel that was foolish to that pagan culture, and was associated with a disdained people, that gospel that proclaimed a man who said to be his, he said he was his people's Messiah, and yet he was crucified, handed over to be crucified by his own people. It was certainly a message that would bring shame on a person and cause those who heard the message to respond negatively. And yet, we see Paul presents the gospel for what it was, despite any fear of how people would react or what they would think. And my friends, when we share this offensive message, and someone is saved. That, my friends, is living proof that we can take no credit for that salvation. I can't pat myself on the back and say, well, I must have been pretty convincing. I must have really drawn them in. I must have said it in just the right way. No, instead, when we preach this message and someone is saved, it shows exactly what Paul says is true in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God, not the power of man. So God gets all the credit as he confounds the wisdom of this world. And if we think we have to make it palatable, that we have to alter it in some way or leave anything out, then do we really believe that it is God who saves or do we think it's us who saves? That we have to be compelling enough and maybe we need to sugarcoat the things that are harder to swallow. 
Now, what we have to understand is that the gospel is foolish. It's foolish. And it's offensive to a lost and dying world that loves their sin and wants to boast in their own goodness. And so for Paul to pad the gospel with eloquency and, and wise-sounding words so that it would be acceptable to the Greek, or for you and I uh, to make the gospel sound less, less exclusive and more open-minded for those we encounter, all of that is to do nothing more than to empty the gospel of its power. No, the very reason Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, the one true gospel, is because this is the gospel, the gospel from God, is the very power of God. It's the power of God for salvation. And so therefore, Paul was going to deliver it just just as he had received it from God. He wasn't going to add to it, wasn't going to change anything. Just had God had given it to him, then he was going to turn around and give it to others. I think it was John MacArthur. Um, I tried to find the quote, and so I'm not going to give it exactly the way it, it was, because I thought it was in his book, The Master's Plan for the Church, but apparently not. Um, but somewhere, MacArthur gives the illustration of a waiter, comparing a waiter to someone who's proclaiming God's word, proclaiming the gospel. Compares it to a waiter delivering food to tables. The waiter's job is to deliver the food just as he had received it from the chef. The waiter on the way to the table is not to think to himself, you know, I think these green beans need a little more salt. You know, if I would just add a little more brown sugar to these sweet potatoes, they'd be just great that way. Or, you know, if we just took some parsley, you know, we can make this all plate just look so beautiful. It's so, so appetizing. No, that's not the waiter's prerogative. He has no right to sweeten or garnish what the chef has prepared. His job is to deliver what he received from the chef just as he had received it. And that is every Christian's duty as well when it comes to the gospel. We deliver the gospel message just as we received it from God, and we have no right to alter it or dress it up in any way. Delivering the gospel as he received it Paul saw the power of God at work as people heard the gospel and so believed on Christ and were saved. He preached the gospel despite how anyone might respond, despite what they might think or what even they might do. Brothers and sisters, if first and foremost we care about what other people think above what God thinks of us, we care about what other people think above pleasing God, then we will be ashamed of the gospel. If we're concerned about how people will react to us, we will be ashamed of the gospel. If, to steal a phrase from Ed Welch, if in our eyes people are big and God is small, we will be ashamed of the gospel. So let's face it, we want people to like us, right? I want people to like me. I don't like it when they don't. We want people to like us. We don't want to look or feel foolish. We want to avoid confrontation. We want to maintain our status among coworkers and friends. And even as a church, 
with our associations. We, we want to maintain a reputation. And if those desires are raised up above our desire to please our God, those desires become nothing more than idols. Uh, they, they become the focal point of our worship. And we then become ashamed of the gospel. Such fears will dictate what we say and, and what we do and how we practice. It will affect our gospel proclamation. And here's the truth of the matter. If we preach the pure gospel, the natural man in of himself will be repelled. If the gospel we preach can be well accepted by every and any apostate church, if the message we proclaim never offends anybody, that should be a red flag for us. Have we sugar-coated the gospel? Have we left out the things that we know people don't want to hear? I mean, we're told, listen, don't, don't talk about sin and wrath and judgment. People want just, just say God loves you and Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. That's all we have to say, right? Why did Jesus die? What's the point? Why are we called to trust in Jesus? What do I have to trust in him for? So all my problems go away? So I can have a cushy life? So that I can feel better about myself and have higher self-esteem? Is that why I need to come to Jesus? That's not the gospel of Scripture. The Scriptures say that you are under the condemnation of God due to your sin. That to go to heaven, you must have righteousness that exceeds all other righteousness in this world. You must have perfect righteousness, and without it, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel says your sin must be paid for, or you will pay for it yourself for all eternity. We must proclaim the true gospel. People don't come to Jesus Christ just to get their problems fixed. They come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and their right standing before God. If we leave these things out, we've proclaimed a different gospel. But those things are offensive. But the gospel's offensive. Now, if we're being offensive, if we're being arrogant and, and hot-headed and rude and, and, and we're presenting ourselves as better than those that we're talking to, then that, that's a problem. The offense shouldn't be from us. If anyone's offended, let them not be offended by us, but let them be offended by the truth. Let the truth offend, and the truth will offend. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he explains why the gospel is offensive to people. He said, the offense of the cross is this, that I am so condemned and so lost and so helpless that if he, Jesus Christ, had not died for me, I would never know God and I could never be forgiven. And that hurts. 
that annoys, that tells me I am hopeless, that I am vile, that I'm useless, and as a natural man, I do not like it. The gospel itself is something that produces the reaction of offense in people. But you know what we're told? If we just allow ourselves to to bring in the influences of the world, that we can connect with people and, and attract them in, then we'll see people be saved. We'll grow our churches. If we can just be accepted by the world. Well, I mean, think about that song with the Gettys. I mean... Wouldn't the Gettys have reached more people if they just allowed the PCUSA to change that one little phrase and get their song in that hymnal? Wouldn't they have had a, a wider audience to reach and, and more opportunities? What's the big deal? Isn't it just a, a little phrase? Well, if it's not a big deal, just a little phrase, then why was it such a big deal for the PCUSA that they had to drop the song? See, the truth of the matter is we know it's a big deal, that it makes a gospel of a difference. We know. And when we refuse to change even the slightest iota to be faithful to God's word, the world and the carnal so-called church will drop us just like the PCUSA dropped that song. And if we seek to gain the accolades of people, that we just want people to like us and speak well of us, and, and so that dictates what we say and what we do, and we get everybody saying all kinds of things for us, where has that really gotten us? What would Jesus think about that? Well, we don't have to wonder because we can know. Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Why did the people speak well of the false prophets? Because the false prophets told them what they wanted to hear. For example, think of Jeremiah. Is Jeremiah's warning of the coming destruction because of the judgment of God on a people who broke covenant with him as he's warning of the coming Babylonians. What were the false prophets saying? Peace. Peace. It's all good. Don't, don't listen to that quack. God loves you. It's okay. Everything's going to be a bed of roses. Peace. And we know how that turned out. People spoke well of the false prophets because they told the people what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. And Jesus proclaims judgment on those who are like the false prophets, that all people would speak well of them. Woe to you. We must say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Only this gospel saves. Only this message demonstrates the power of God and the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because it is only Jesus who saves. Only in Christ are the spiritually dead in sin raised to life. Only in Christ is the condemned converted. Only in Jesus is the ruined lawbreaker 
made new and reconciled to the holy lawgiver. Only in Christ. You must be saved by the power of God because only God saves. And it can only be the power of God to change your dead, stone-hard heart in pride and sin, to change and break that stone, to give you a heart of flesh that beats for your creator. Only God can do that for you. Only God saves. Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but the man who is God. My friends, hear the gospel. Hear the power of God. Look to Christ and be saved. are not ashamed of this gospel. And we see here, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for it was the power of God for salvation. And it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, that, that's the statement that Paul is going to defend for the next 11 chapters. The gospel is the power of God as it affects salvation to those who believe. And so we see here, one, the gospel demands faith. Matter of fact, God does not save the lost sinner apart from repentance and faith. And faith is trust. It's reliance. It's dependency. It's even surrender. Letting go. Stopping from working to get yourself to God by what you do. By your own power and your own authority. But instead, submitting to the work of your Lord. Submitting to his lordship and all that he is and all that he's done. In this then, you come to God on his terms, not your terms. That's faith. And so once again, we see as we, we saw when we were looking at the life of Abraham in Genesis, and as we, we talked about at the, the beginning, the introduction to this series, that you cannot separate repentance and faith. They are two distinct things for sure, but they go together. Like John Calvin said, there are, the, there are two sides of the same coin. If you have repentance, you have faith. And if you have faith, you have repentance. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to those who have faith. And we see this power of God at work. We'll see, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 10, in verse 17 it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word, you could say hearing through the message of Christ. As we talk about the gospel as the power of God, we see that God's power is at work in the proclamation of the gospel so that it affects those who hear it. It may affect, as we've seen in Acts, the hardening of the heart, all the more towards the gospel, in God's judgment, towards the reprobate who refuses to believe. But here in Romans 10, we see that for those whom God calls to himself, he creates faith in the person, in the hearing of the gospel. And so we see that to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. He creates faith in those he saves. 
That faith comes from hearing and hearing the message of Christ. And so the gospel is proclaimed so that those who hear it will believe and be saved. And as we see here, it's proclaimed to the Jew first. Uh, This is the priority of the gospel, that the Jews would be the first ones to receive the offer of salvation. Uh, This is because the Jews are God's chosen people. The Jews were who were promised the coming of Messiah. Uh, the Jews were the ones who Messiah came through. And the Jews were, and, and I would argue in the future will be again, God's chosen instrument to reach the nations. And so as we take all of this, we understand Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well when he said that salvation comes from the Jews. And therefore, they are the priority of the gospel that they would believe upon their Messiah and be saved. Yet the gospel is not only for them, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the rest of the world. The gospel must go out to every corner of the earth. That those who would believe would be saved in Jesus Christ. And then as we come to Verse 17 here in chapter 1, Paul tells us why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. See, again, there's a problem. We are sinners in of ourselves. And sinners have no righteousness. Yet God demands perfect righteousness. And that righteousness is according to his own standard and his own definition of righteousness, not yours and not mine. And no one else's. It's only by his own. Well, the very next thing we're going to see here as we continue through Romans, picking up in verse 18, is that there is no Gentile, including any of you and myself, No Gentile who has any righteousness in of themselves. But instead, no matter how much good we want to claim, we are vile sinners. And then Paul will show that all Jews, no matter what they may boast in, they are really, in of themselves, vile sinners. And then he brings it all together. He shows that everything he's been getting at in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 8, He showed that all of it was showing that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And so there are none who are righteous, not even one. But we need righteousness. So how can we get righteousness? Where can the answer be found? In the gospel, which reveals the righteousness of God. Or maybe it could be better translated as the righteousness from God. The righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel. This then is not a righteousness that is revealed in the sinner, or a righteousness in that God's acts transforms the sinner to be in of himself righteous, though don't get me wrong, this righteousness does come with transforming work. That we are no longer who we used to be. We, we talked about that in Sunday school, right? But nonetheless, 
This righteousness does not come out from the sinner, but is the righteousness from God credited to the sinner who believes. Giving them a right standing, a legal or forensic standing before God as being declared righteous. They are righteous in his sight. And so this righteousness credited to the believer, revealed in the gospel, it is revealed in Jesus Christ. So then, apart from whatever it is that one does, apart from whatever effort one has put into being righteous and establishing their own righteousness, what this is instead is a righteousness from God apart from any effort or any work of the sinner. If there is no righteousness in you, then you need a righteousness that is outside of you. That one will never be generated in you. It must be, as Luther said, an alien righteousness. And yet so many want to cling to the idea of their own righteousness, even, even as they recognize they're not perfect. Well, you know, God knows I'm trying. You know, we're, we're, I'm doing my best. So yeah, I think, I think God will, will see me as good and righteous. He knows I'm doing my best. Are you though? I mean, I mean, can we actually look at our lives and say that we've been doing our best? No, none of us can. And guess what? Even if we could, our best still would not be good enough. God demands a perfect righteousness. We don't have it. So we need to be given a righteousness that is from God. And then when we get the righteousness from God, we receive the righteousness that meets God's standard. Because this is the very righteousness of God credited to us. It's God's righteousness that we receive by faith. So we need God to meet the standard for us because we can't meet it. And if we try to meet it, the only expectation we have is the horrible expectation of judgment and wrath for our sins. We need God's righteousness credited to us. Again, and this righteousness from God, it's revealed in the gospel. And this righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith. Or you could translate it as from faith to faith. You might say, Scott, what does that mean? What do you mean it's from faith to faith? Well, there, there is no limit of all the interpretations that are out there for what this means. For example, some argue that it points to the growth of faith among the Gentiles. Now, others say it's the idea of going from one kind of faith to another kind of faith. Like being Jewish and then, and then trusting in Christ, uh, trusting in works of the law to trusting in Christ, going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Others argue that it is, as one pastor put it, the righteousness of God revealed from faith from start to finish. That you begin your Christian walk credited with God's righteousness on the basis of faith, and you continue to live by faith, pursuing faith, growing in faith, as you walk by faith. I'm convinced that we can know exactly what Paul is getting at here as we look and see the scripture that Paul points to to support what he's saying. And he points to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 for this. 
And in Habakkuk, the prophet was looking at the wickedness of his people, of God's chosen people, and he asked God, how can you tolerate all this wickedness? I see all of this injustice all around me, all of these evil things, and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. God, how can you tolerate such wickedness? And when God answers the prophet, he gets a surprising answer. God tells him that he was doing something about it. And what he was doing was raising up the Babylonians to enact his justice on a faithless people who broke covenant with him. Now, this didn't sit well with the prophet because he's thinking, wait, you're going to judge your unrighteous people with an even more unrighteous people? (laughs) How does that work? But God made it clear that he was going to use the Babylonians as his instrument and then turn around and judge the Babylonians. Because God is just. And so we see as you come to chapter 2 of Habakkuk that God tells his prophets to write down the vision and that it would happen at its appointed time. And then God contrasts the Babylonians with a righteous people, the people who trusted the Lord, uh, that people who were the remnant of Israel, God's chosen, that he would persevere and preserve and fulfill his promises through. And so we read in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, or Habakkuk says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so first, we we see the pride of the Babylonians. His soul is puffed up, and therefore, he's he's not upright within himself. Someone who is proud, traveling the path that he has set for himself, or who is self-reliant, trusting in himself and his own works, such a person who boasts in himself, who is proud, cannot be upright. And that really should make us think, right? The righteous person really must be a humble person, and we know that from the gospel, right? We need to be humble ourselves. We need to recognize we're wrong. We need to recognize we deserve wrath, that we are vile. And what we have done is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And so recognize that we are under an infinite judgment and so need a Savior. And therefore come to the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust in Him alone to save us. And then having been saved, credited with the righteousness of God by faith, we continue in that humble faith. We grow more and more in humility as we continue to look to Christ in faith. In Habakkuk's day, the the Lord pointed to the fact that those who truly trust the Lord, they continue to trust him, even through the tyranny of the Babylonians. And they are the ones who it is said are righteous. They are righteous as they are the ones who live by faith. And so in all this, Paul is getting across that one is not considered righteous by any amount of merit because of any works of themselves, but solely and simply by faith alone. Righteousness is applied by faith through and through, and it remains by faith alone as one continues on in faith, from faith to faith. 
It never becomes at any point about what I do. It's always faith in Jesus Christ. From the start of my Christian walk to the Lord calls me home to be with him. It's from faith to faith. And remember what we discussed about faith, looking at the life of Abraham. And what we said we'll see later in Romans. Faith is the recognition that it's all by grace. Faith is looking to Christ, not looking to myself. Faith is recognizing he's done all the work, and I can do nothing. It's recognizing it's all by grace. And you and I have come to faith through the power of God when we heard the gospel. God who accomplished and secured our salvation in Jesus Christ. Christ who stored up righteousness in his perfect life, keeping God's standard of perfect righteousness for us. He who then went to the cross where the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus in the place of the sinners he saves. That he died for our sins and rose again because of our justification. You who believe, you believed when you heard the gospel. You believed by the power of God. And trusting in this gospel, trusting in Jesus to save you, you recognize you cannot save yourself. That there is no power in anything about you to be saved. Nothing at all. Nothing in your church attendance, nothing in your membership, nothing in your baptism, nothing in your service, nothing in your upbringing, nothing about anything about you. There's no power there. There's only power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must look to him by faith to be saved. You must trust in Jesus alone. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe because the gospel proclaims Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God for all who believe. So my friends, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've acknowledged the truth about Christ, but you've never actually depended on it, you've acknowledged that's true, but you've never found your security in Christ, that he is your righteousness, he is your right standing before God, he is your eternal security. If you have not trusted in him, I beg you today, put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Only Jesus saves. Trust in him. Know you have been forgiven, no matter what it is that you have done, and you have a right standing before God. And as long as Jesus stands before God as righteous, you will stand before God as righteous. And when will Jesus stop ever being righteous? Never. He is the righteous God. He is our righteousness. Our hope is secure in him. Trust in him alone, and you will be saved. And as you trust in him, as you see all that your Savior has done for you, how he has paid for your sin, how he has made you right before this holy God, your heart will be endeared to him all the more. You will love this great God and Savior, and it will cause you to see how glorious and how worthy of your life being lived for him he is. And so in response to such a great love that he has had for you, you will love him in return. You will recognize his lordship over your life, and your life will be changed. There's no way you can come to know the power of God in your life and not be changed. Oh, the power of God is too great, too glorious. God will bring you and grow you in this right standing to actually begin to live out this righteousness in which he has given you a standing before him in. 
so your life will be changed and will continue to change and grow as you continue in faith in Christ. So if you have not believed in Christ, believe and you will be saved. And brothers and sisters, you who are trusting in Christ Jesus alone to save you, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Remember when you heard the gospel and believed. Remember when God first did his saving work in you. Remember the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so live in response to that power. Be ready to boldly proclaim this gospel. We have a great and glorious God and Savior who is worthy of all honor and praise, and he is worthy of whatever it takes to live for him, whatever cost there is in making him known. He's, he's worthy of that cost. And so let us not be ashamed of the gospel, even if the world finds our message offensive, even if all hell comes against us because of it. Let us proclaim this gospel because we know Christ is building his church, and it's through the gospel that he, he brings people into his church, and he grows his church, and he makes his name known throughout this world is God's means of his work in his people for his glory. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us not fall into the trap of thinking we need to entertain people to Jesus. Let us not think that we need to the influences of the world to grow the church. No, that would be to be ashamed of the gospel, and it would empty the gospel of its power. And so, brothers and sisters, may we never be ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel alone, the gospel that has been given to us by God himself, this gospel, and it alone is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Because in this gospel, the righteousness of God, the righteousness we need is revealed. It is from faith to faith. Praise God. Glory to his name for what he has given us in Jesus Christ. Let us go out and live and proclaim in response. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.